John chapter 20. You can take your Bible out and turn to John chapter 20 as we continue our verse-by-verse expositional series through the Gospel of John. I was out the last two Sundays leading our team to Guatemala to serve there. And Guatemala, that sounds like I'm from around here, don't I? Guatemala. Uh, to serve there, and I'm thankful for Pastor Wade preaching uh, two Sundays in a row, but he got to preach on the crucifixion and the burial. It's a real happy subjects, right? I come back, I get to preach on the resurrection. I did not plan it that way ahead of time. That just happens to be the way it fell. Now, as you might imagine, a resurrection passage like this from John chapter 20 Uh, Having been preaching a long time, I've actually already preached this passage before. I looked it up in my files, and I preached John 20, verses 1 through 10, in 2013. And so I'm sure most of y'all remember that sermon from back then. But I actually didn't even read over the message because I wanted to approach this text with fresh eyes, with fresh heart, uh, so we could consider what the Lord is saying to us today from John chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. The message I've entitled this way, it's all in the details. It's all in the details. And that's true, whatever you do. Details are important. If you've had the opportunity to order or to go purchase some furniture from Ikea and you try to put that furniture together when you get home, following the instructions to a T, you'll recognize it's all in the details, whether or not that thing's going to hold up or it's going to fall down. The same is true when we're in our occupations and our various vocations. There are some tasks that we perform that require our focus because it's all in the details. It's true in athletics. If you're a basketball coach, we've got some basketball coaches here, and you're coaching one of your players on the proper way to shoot a free throw, not that I know anything about this, but I understand you have to hold the ball a certain way, you have to set your feet a certain way, and you have to follow through a certain way. It's all in the details. Same is true in football. All the different positions in football that you may have and that you may coach, whether it's an offensive lineman, which will be completely different than the skill set of a defensive lineman or a quarterback or a kicker or a receiver. And it's also true in the sport of wrestling. My son Trent coaches wrestling down in Dade County, and uh, he started middle school practice this week, had 25 middle schoolers by himself coaching them, and uh, most of them beginners. I asked Trent this week after his first day of practice, I said, what's the first skill you teach a new wrestler? He said, stance. Reason being, the stance, and if you have a correct stance, like this guy right here, it will correct most of the failures and flaws that people have. It's all in the details, whatever it is you're doing. We've mentioned several times before through our study in John's gospel that John was, one, written much later than the other three gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. As such, John assumes You've read those gospel accounts. You understand what's in them. And so he presents some stuff that's a little different and nuanced from those three accounts. And it also, he presents them because those things that he presents really undergird his theme and his intention under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They're not contradictory to the other accounts. They're simply laying over, giving us a well-rounded, comprehensive picture of Jesus. And particularly this passage here, with regard to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. These features undergird the main theme and focus of John's gospel. As such, what we're going to read today is not happenstance. 
What he includes that's different than what the other gospel accounts include is not accidental. It's very intentional. So let's consider John chapter 20. We're going to be reading from verse 1 through verse 10. This is the inspired word of God. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. It may seem a bit odd to you that we are preaching a resurrection passage in October. I mean, shouldn't we save this for March or April, Easter time? Well, the fact is, one, we're going through the Gospel of John systematically, and this is where we've come to on this date in October. But further, every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Every Sunday, we celebrate the fact that Jesus is alive, that he's been raised from the dead. So it's altogether appropriate for us to consider these things this morning on this Resurrection Sunday in October. But further, I want us to consider the details, the particular details that John includes in his account of the resurrection because his uh, details that he brings forth, they really add significance and meaning to all that's happening here. So let's consider them together. I've got six specific details from the passage I want to point out to you today. The first one is this. Number one, I want us to consider the weekday of the event. The weekday of the event. Verse one begins... Now, on the first day of the week, you may circle those two words, first day. The first day of the week is not, for us, is not Monday, though that may be the first day of your work week. The first day of the week is what? Sunday. Today is the first day of the week. And we might think, well, it may have been a more natural way for John to record what day it was by saying what day it was with regard to the day of the crucifixion. So he could have said, well, this is the third day from the crucifixion of Jesus. But he doesn't say that. He says specifically it was the first day of the week. And here's what we need to understand about John. If you've been with us through our study, you recognize this to be the case. For John, whatever is chronological is also theological. Whatever is chronological is also theological. As we've gone through John's gospel, we've noted how John has highlighted the particular annual feasts that the Jews celebrated together, especially in the capital of Jerusalem and there in the temple. Throughout his gospel, he highlights those feasts in his narrative of Christ and his ministry. For instance, the reason we know Jesus's ministry was three years long, we don't know this from Matthew, Mark, or Luke, we know it from John, because John records not one, not two, but three distinct 
Passover festivals at the beginning, at the middle, and at the end of Jesus' ministry. That's how we know that. And so he's very careful and clear to present these chronological markers for us to understand what's happening. One of the things we need to understand about Jewish celebrations and Jewish festivals is the festivals would actually not conclude on the seventh day, like we might think. The festivals would conclude on the eighth day or what would be the first day of the next week. Reason being, the seventh day would be the Sabbath. What are Jews allowed to do on the Sabbath day? Absolutely nothing, right? They're not allowed to do anything on the Sabbath day. So you conclude this feast. Well, you can't really celebrate the feast on the Sabbath because you're not allowed to party. You move to the eighth day, that's the celebration day. That's when you celebrate this festival that they've all come together to do. And so we see this particularly in John chapter 7. This is just one example. Uh, This is the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. At the end of the Feast of Booths, notice what the Bible says in John 7. On the last day of the feast, this would be day eight, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And what was Jesus talking about in that proclamation on the festival feast celebration day on that Sunday, as we would understand the day of the week? He's saying If you believe in me, guess what? You're going to receive the Holy Spirit from within you. I will give you the power of the Holy Spirit, and he will come forth with living water from your life. So think about it. Jesus promises the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit on Sunday of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, here we are in John chapter 20, and Jesus is resurrected from the dead on Sunday by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he promises this same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead will be alive in you. When was that promise fulfilled? Anybody know? What day? Pentecost. Pentecost Sunday, right? Pentecost Sunday, penta means what? Five or 50. So there's seven weeks in the Feast of First Fruits. Seven times seven is 49. That's the Sabbath, 49. You go to day 50, that's Sunday. On Pentecost Sunday, the first day of the week, the Holy Spirit is poured out. Friends, that's why Sunday is our day. That's why the first day of the week is the day of the new covenant. Jesus promised the Holy Spirit on the first day of the week. He was resurrected by the Spirit on the first day of the week, and he poured out the Spirit on the first day of the week. Lord, please pour out your spirit today. Amen? This is what we want, who we want to be. In fact, the apostles were so moved by this power of the Holy Spirit coming down on Sunday, they established in the New Testament church that Sunday would be the day of gathering, the day of worship, the day we celebrate Christ's work even through communion. Notice what the Bible records in Acts chapter 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to do what? To break bread. That's communion. Paul talked with him. So Paul preached that Sunday worship gathering together. And for 2,000 years, this first day of the week has been the day of worship for believers in Jesus. That's the first detail I want us to consider, the weekday of this event. Here's the second detail, the women who were there. The women who were there, verse 1 continues, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early 
while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, you may have noticed some English majors that I use the plural women when John only mentions one woman. Well, why would I do that? Again, if you overlay all four gospel accounts on top of each other, you realize that when Mary Magdalene came, she came with a group of women. She was the leader of the group. In fact, in verse 2, when she goes back and reports to Peter and John, the body's missing. What does she say? We, who's we? Her and the other women. We do not know where they've taken him, where they've laid him, indicating she's not alone. So John chooses here to highlight the women, but particularly to zoom in on Mary Magdalene, who would be the leader of that group. So here's the question. Why did Mary come to the tomb early that Sunday morning, that first day of the week? I mean, Jesus was buried on Friday. He's been buried. Why would she she come? Why would the other women come? Well, Mark chapter 16, verse 1 tells us why they came. They came to apply spices and ointment to the corpse of Jesus. See, they didn't have what we understand as modern internment and funeral processes to preserve the body uh, in order to prevent decay and in order to uh, push down the pungent smell that would come from a corpse, they would put all kinds of spices and oils on the corpse. If you were here last week, you may have remembered seeing in the passage that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea are actually who buried Jesus. And the text says that Nicodemus brought 75 pounds of spices. That's quite a bit. So why is Mary and the other women coming here this Sunday morning to do the same thing? That's what Mark tells us. They're coming with spices to anoint Jesus's body. Did they not know that Nicodemus and, and Joseph of Arimathea had already done that? Well, perhaps they knew, but maybe it's like we can certainly imagine this, that they understood, well, it's a couple men going to do this job with spices. We got to follow up there and make sure they've done it right. I'm only kidding, maybe. So, but they show up there to really apply more. They go there expecting to find Jesus's corpse. And one thing this should say to us today is as we look back to Jesus's day is what an important role women had in Jesus's ministry. They're faithful. They're fervent in devotion to the Lord. And this also, by extension, shows us the vital importance of women in the church today. Men, let me ask you this question. Yes or no question. Would the church today be what it's supposed to be without women? Yes or no? No, it would not. You can say it a little louder. No, it wouldn't. We need women. We need faithful women like these women. We need women who are committed and fervent in their devotion to the Lord. Because you think about it. When the shepherd was struck, the sheep were scattered. All the disciples, save John, exited stage left. All the disciples were nowhere to be found at the arrest, at the interrogation, at the trial, at the beating, at the crucifixion. But the women were there, faithfully serving the Lord. Now, as we consider Mary Magdalene particularly in this passage, you may be familiar with some of the irreverent literature that exists surrounding Mary Magdalene and Jesus. For instance, the rock opera Jesus Christ Superstar from a few decades ago, and then the best-selling book The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown. I've read that book fully, and I've watched the movie. 
Uh, Both of those books indicate, or that movie and that book, indicate that Jesus and Mary Magdalene had a romantic relationship. You need to know there is zero evidence, biblically or outside the Bible, to give any credibility to that kind of idea at all. It is a false notion. In fact, even in the church, there are some who assume that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. How many of you have heard that before, that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute? She was not. The Bible never calls her a prostitute. There is a prostitute mentioned in Luke chapter 7, and people assume that was Mary Magdalene, but Mary is never named a prostitute in the Bible. You go to Luke chapter 8, Mary's mentioned, and she has demons that she is relieved from by the power of the Lord. She's converted to faith in Jesus, and she now becomes a faithful disciple and follower of Christ. In fact, she contributed out of her financial means to the Lord's ministry. We do know this, that John and other disciples highlight Mary Magdalene particularly around the crucifixion and the resurrection. She is a faithful, devoted follower of Christ and a leading woman among the women who were disciples. That leads us to the third detail John highlights, and that is this, number three, the winning of the race. The winning of the race. This is another detail exclusive to, as you might guess, John only tells us about him winning the race. What's the deal here? Well, let's look again uh, at verse four. Both of them, that's Peter and John, were running together, but the other disciple, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, that's me, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now, really, Think about it, 2,000 years later, who cares who won this foot race? But what's the big deal? Why would it even matter that John outran Peter on their sprint to see the tomb that Jesus formerly inhabited? Is John doing a little bragging here? Uh, This is gonna be in the Bible forever and always. Is he a little prideful here? Does he want all of us to know? I mean, think about it. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the most significant event in human history, bar none. It has changed the course of human history. It has affected all of our lives. And here is John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, recording for us this most significant event, and he jots it, oh, by the way, you need to know, I was booking it. I was flying. Is that what John's doing here? I don't think so. In fact, I'm pretty certain it's not. He gives us some insight into two things by telling us about this race and the fact that he won the race. The first thing is this. He lets us know about the camaraderie between them. John gives us some insight into the camaraderie between himself and the apostle Peter. Peter and John were two key leaders among the disciples and two key leaders in the early church, in the very infancy and formation of the early church. You may remember several months ago when we considered uh, the upper room and the, and the um, Lord's Supper that Jesus established, that Jesus said there, one of you is going to betray me. Peter was across the table and he motioned to John, hey, find out who it is. You're right next to Jesus. Find out who it is. That's recorded in the Bible. Why? Because they had that kind of relationship where you have a relationship with people where you can just kind of look and they know what you're talking about? That's Peter and John's relationship. 
In five weeks, we'll be at the end of this gospel, Lord willing, and we'll see the last paragraph that we'll study together. And it's interesting, the exchange that happens between Peter and Jesus. Notice it in chapter 21, verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following him, the one who, was also, who also had leaned back against him during supper and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? So that's what I just mentioned. Verse 21, when Peter saw him, that's John, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Peter wants to know, not about these other disciples, what's going to happen to John? Because they had this kinship, they had this camaraderie that is very intimate. And I think this account here in chapter 20 indicates that as well, even this winning of the foot race. Well, what does this show us? Well, most scholars believe that this is not an indication of John's pride, I won the race, but actually of his humility. See, John was significantly younger than Peter, perhaps as much as a half generation, 20 years. So Peter at this time, he already was married, therefore obviously had a mother-in-law. We know about his mother-in-law from the Bible. He had a house. John, according to church tradition, would live until 90 AD. Let's say this is 33 AD. He has almost 60 years of life left from the time of the resurrection. So he's significantly younger than Peter is. And so that's probably why he outran old man Peter. But the other thing is, is in this passage, he's actually giving deference to Peter. He got there first. Did he go in? No. He waits on the senior adult Peter. <laughs> he waits on Peter to show up. Now, he may have been a little timid. Peter may have been a little impetuous. But regardless, John waits on Peter. He got there first. He recognizes Peter were equals as far as being disciples, but Peter was the first among the equals. Not only does it show us something about the camaraderie between Peter and John, but secondly, this foot race actually speaks to the credibility of the account. It speaks to the credibility of this account because what this is, it, it demonstrates to us that this is John's eyewitness account. I was there. I lived it. I ran. I beat Peter. John's not telling us something he heard from somebody who heard it from somebody who heard it from somebody. He's telling us as a first-hand testimony, I was there first. I waited on Peter. That was me. Again, often we see this, these details in his gospel, especially when he refers to himself somewhat cryptically. And he'll do that from time to time. He'll refer to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved or the other disciple. He'll share that, and then he'll give some type of exclusive information that was not known to us from the other three gospels that come from his personal eyewitness. How do we know what happened with the questioning of Jesus by the high priest Annas? How do we know any of the details? Because John was there. He heard it. The other disciples did not. How do we know that Jesus commended his mother Mary to John from the cross? None of the other gospels tell us that. John alone tells us that. Why? Because he was there. He's an eyewitness. He heard it and saw it. And so even here, this all goes back to the very theme that we saw reiterated last uh, in a couple weeks ago in John chapter 19, verse 35. Look at that passage. He, that's John, John who saw it, has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth. Why? That you 
may believe. John gives us these little nuances and these little nuggets of detail to let us know he's telling the truth. Because think about it. If you made up some story, like let's say finding some golden plates out in the woods of North New York, wouldn't you just tell the general story? Would you make up some kind of detail like, yeah, me and another guy, we were running together and I beat him and he came there and then he, I, he went in first and I followed after him. Those are the kind of details that you don't make up when you're making a big fabrication and a lie, right? Those are some details that lend credibility. John's saying, I was really there. Here's the fourth detail. Number four, the witness of the cloth. The witness of the cloth. In John chapter, uh, in verse seven, John mentions something. Again, the other three accounts do not mention. It's this folded up face cloth of Jesus. Luke mentions the grave clothes, but he does not mention specifically a face cloth. Look again at verse six and seven. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus's head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in a place by itself. Why would John include this detail? Is he just trying to show us Jesus is very neat when it comes to laundry? He likes to fold his clothes neatly and put them to the side. Is, is that what John's trying to communicate here? No, because when John walks in in verse eight, he sees that folded up face cloth and the text says he believes. There is something profound in that face cloth being folded up and set to the side that engendered faith in John. What was it? Well, a couple things I want us to see about that face cloth. First of all, this face cloth is a demonstration of contrast. John's drawing a contrast for us here, a deliberate contrast. What is it? It's a contrast between Jesus' resurrection from the dead and Lazarus' resurrection from the dead back in chapter 11. That's the contrast John wants us to see by this little detail of a folded face cloth. Look at chapter 19, verse 40. This will give us some insight. Chapter 19, verse 40 says this, so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices as is the burial custom of the Jews. So there was a standard practice, a, a normal operating procedure among the Jews of the first century, that when they would bury someone, particularly a male Jew, there was a process they went through. It was the operation process, the standard practice, the burial custom. So we can presume, and I think rightly so, that the same way Jesus was buried is the same way Lazarus was buried. Now, back in February of this year, I preached John 11. I preached a message entitled, A Preview of Coming Attractions. And in that message, I went through some detail historically about how Jews in the first century buried one another. And here's basically what they did, real quick. They would have a large table, or perhaps on the floor, a long linen sheet. And they would lay the corpse on top of that sheet. They would fold over the top half of that sheet, over the top half of the body, the bottom half of the sheet, over the bottom half of the body. They would tuck it in, and they would, they would take some linen strips, and they would bind the ankles so they wouldn't separate. They would bind the arms close to the torso, and then they had a separate face cloth that they would wrap around the head. This is the standard burial custom of the Jews. And so you think about it. 
If you'll remember, I told you in the message that when Christ called Lazarus from the dead, where were his grave clothes? Where were those linen strips? Where was that face cloth? Was it still in the tomb? No, it was wrapped around him. He was like a mummy. And I told you then, he probably had to hop out of that grave. He's tightly bound together, can't move his feet, can't move his arms, can't move his head. And what did Jesus say? Well, look at it in John eleven forty four. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. And so Lazarus's face was wrapped with a cloth. The very same word in John 11 is translated here, cloth or face cloth in John 20. And there is a massive contrast that John wants us to see here. Jesus's resurrection was not like Lazarus's resurrection. You see, when Lazarus was resurrected from the dead, he was resurrected to mortality. He would die again. When Lazarus was resurrected from the dead, he was still bound up in the bonds of death. But Christian, when Jesus came out of the dead, he didn't come back in mortality. He came back in immortality. He didn't come back bound in the bonds of death. He came out liberated from the bonds of death. Death died when Jesus was resurrected. And that's what Jesus is demonstrating, what John is communicating. Jesus is also, friend, the first fruits of our resurrection, that we will escape the bonds of death with a new resurrection body forever. So John is demonstrating this contrast. This is one of a kind unique from anything that's ever happened in the history of humanity. But there's something else he is doing here, and that is there's a declaration of conclusion. By Jesus folding up the face cloth and setting it to the side, he's saying, I won't be needing that anymore. I'm done with that pillowcase. <laughs> I don't need that head covering. Death has died. In our living room at home, Amy keeps a throw blanket over the couch there. And the mainly the reason she keeps that throw blanket there is not to be warm and snuggly, but it's just a color contrast to the palette of the rest of the living room, right? It's just a decor feature. But what happens when our children were growing up and now our grandchildren are sitting on that couch and they're watching cartoons? What do you think they do? They pull that blanket down and then they snuggle themselves up while they watch cartoons or whatever it is they're doing. Now, when they're done, of course, they take the blanket, they neatly fold it and put it back where they got it from, right? No, they don't. Amy comes back in. You kids, when you're done using a blanket, fold it up and put it back the way you got it. Why? That is indicate something. You're done with it. Jesus folded it up. And he said, I'm done with it. The clothes of death have no more use for me anymore. Amy's just like Jesus, right? <laughs> this is the witness of the face cloth. There's a contrast between resurrections and there's a consideration that the work is complete. That leads to the fifth detail I want us to see, and that is the way of faith. The way of faith. You see, this folded cloth, this detail of the folded neatly face cloth on the side is there to lead us 
to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And John describes with some nuance what I'm referring to as the way of faith, or perhaps you could call it the progression of faith. And here's where we see it. In verse 5, verse 6, and verse 8, John uses in our New Testament in English the same English word, saw, saw, saw. Verse 5, John stooped to look in the grave, and he saw the linen cloths. Verse 6, Peter went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there. Verse 8, John again went into the tomb. He saw and believed. And we can read that in English, and we think, okay, that's, that's pretty clear, straightforward. They each saw it. But what's interesting is that John uses three distinct and different Greek words that are underneath those English words, saw, saw, saw. And they each communicate something profound about the progression of faith, the way of faith. I want you to consider them. The first is this, and that is you first have to recognize the facts. You have to recognize the facts. In verse 5, and stooping to look in, he saw, the Greek word under there is the Greek word blepo. He saw the linen cloth. And what blepo means simply is just to observe it with your eyeballs. You see it. You recognize it. Okay, I saw it. I see you. You see me. That's just simply what that means. Very simple and straightforward. That's step one. You got to recognize it. Recognize the facts of what's happening and what's in front of you. Here's a second step. Reflect on the meaning. The next word is the word theoreo. That's translated saw in verse 6 and 7. Look what it says. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw, he theoreo, the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths but folded up in a place by itself. Can you see an English word in that Greek word theoreo? Theory. The verb would be theorize. This is a verb. Peter walked in, and what did he do? He began to theorize. He began to try to make some sense of this. He began to think through the possibilities. He began to reflect on the meaning of this arrangement of the grave clothes here and the face cloth here. Well, I got to develop what is happening here. Well, that moves to the next one. The third step is you regard what you see as true. You regard it as true. That's the third word translated saw. Look at verse 8, then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw horao and believed. Here's what the word horao means, to perceive with understanding, to draw a conclusion, or to know by experience. See how saw is so inadequate? (laughs) He saw. What do you mean he saw? He drew a conclusion. He came to a conclusion. And the text continues, he believed. He believed. He saw the missing body of Jesus. He saw the folding grave clo- folded grave clothes and the face cloth by itself. And Jesus communicated through those grave clothes to John's heart, I'm alive. Now, here's the thing. His faith was genuine. His faith was authentic. But his faith was incomplete. It was incomplete. That moves to the final thing I want us to see, and that is number six, the word as authority. John saw with comprehension, with understanding, he believed, but notice what verse nine says. 
For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. His faith was real, but it was incomplete. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. What did they need to firmly engender this faith, this belief in their own hearts? It had to come from the authority of the scripture, from the word of God. This is what would cement in their minds the validity of what they have been witnessing with their eyes. You may remember Luke chapter 24 describes Jesus after the resurrection, anonymously coming to these disciples who are walking on the road to Emmaus. He doesn't reveal his identity to them immediately. And as they're walking along the road, notice how Luke records what happened, what Jesus did there. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. They didn't know what was happening. They heard maybe Jesus is alive, maybe Jesus has been resurrected, and it wasn't until Jesus took the scripture and spoke to them from the scripture that they understand clearly, ah, this is what all these things mean. Then they started to connect the dots together. And Jesus later that evening revealed himself to them, who he was, that he was the resurrected Christ, They gathered the other 11 disciples together. And friends, for the next 40 days, the next 40 days, these disciples had an intensive seminary-level theological education from the author of Scripture. He began to tell them over these 40 days everything in the Old Testament, how all the Old Testament pictures and portrayals and types and prophecies were communicating completely about him. And that theological training is what inspired and informed the New Testament we hold in our hands today. Holy Spirit inspired. The scriptures, listen, the scriptures are the rational, attested to, reliable source for our faith. Not what you feel, not what you think, not what you can rationalize or even theorize. The scripture is the rational, attested to foundation for our faith. Again, we were in Guatemala last week, and on one particular day, we needed to go to the shopping center where there was a hardware store, and so that some of our team could buy Guatemalan cowboy hats. Not sure why, but they did. And uh, I needed to go to the hardware store to buy some supplies to fix something at the Cope's house. Well, as we're walking towards the entrance of the hardware store, I'm getting emotional. If I love it, I see four young people walking in our general direction. And I glance over and look, and sure enough, they're Mormon missionaries. And I'm like Pavlov's dog. I just start salivating. Oh, yeah. So I walk up to them. I say, hey, guys, how's it going? How's it going? You doing right? Y'all want to talk about the gospel? That's literally what I asked them. Only one of them spoke English, but we waited for interpretation. And we spoke for about 45 minutes. And in that conversation, I very kindly but clearly showed them the fallacy of their faith. There are zero historical or archaeological evidences of the Native American civilizations that are described in Joseph Smith's book of fiction, The Book of Mormon. 
There are none. And I told them by contrast, there are thousands of archaeological discoveries, even as recent in the last 50 years that they have found that clearly prove what the Bible says is true. And I said, I believe the Bible is true and authoritative because there's all this extant evidence describing its truthfulness. I said, how do you explain that there is no historical evidence for what the Book of Mormon teaches? Here's their response, and I knew it was coming because this is what they always say. I just believe in my heart it's true. Then I said, my patent response to that response. Here's what it is. My heart cannot rejoice in something my head rejects. You might want to write that down. (laughs) My heart can't celebrate, can't rejoice, can't be impassioned about something that makes zero sense logically. God gave us a mind, didn't he? He gave us the ability to to understand concepts, to reason, to theorize. My heart can't rejoice in something my head rejects. There is zero evidence for the Book of Mormon. So why commit your lives to it? That ended up, again, we concluded that conversation, and I thanked them for their kindness and respectfulness, and I said, I hope I was respectful to you as well. They said I was, so good for me. (laughs) But we can also get into a frame of mind where we base our belief system on what we feel, right? What's in our heart? Jeremiah said the heart is deceptive above all else. Who can know it? In fact, there's one particular song that I grew up singing every Easter Sunday that I'm really not a fan of today. Some of you are going to throw tomatoes in a minute, but I'll show it to you. The song is He Lives. He lives. The the chorus says this. He lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. Hallelujah, that's a propositional statement. Jesus is alive. How do we know he's alive? He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. What is that? That's subjective. That's anecdotal. It's unprovable. That's no foundation for your faith. The next line. He lives, he lives, salvation to impart. Hallelujah, that is true. Jesus lives today to impart salvation to all who cry out in faith and repentance. How do we know this propositional statement is true? You ask me how I know he lives, he lives in my heart. Again, subjective and unprovable. Having said that, we do appreciate the Spirit's work in our hearts, but we can't base our faith on just what we feel. Now, if you're particularly upset with me about disparaging this song, we've set up an email account for you to send your (laughs) complaints. (laughs) He will deal with them correctly, okay? (laughs) Here's the deal, listen. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead, if it's not true, the rest of our faith falls. If Jesus didn't personally, physically, bodily, spiritually go from death to life, we have no business being here. The Apostle Paul said, we are of all people most to be pitied if the resurrection is not true. This is pitiful for us being here on a Sunday morning when we could be playing golf or something if the resurrection is not true. But it is true. And there is historical, verifiable, provable, first-hand testimony in the Scriptures, not a feeling. It's fact. 
eyewitnesses to those things, who gave their lives, died martyrs' deaths, proclaiming Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And I would ask you, as we come to a conclusion, have you followed that way of faith I mentioned earlier, that progression of faith? Have you recognized the facts of the gospel? What are the facts of the gospel? God is the creator of all things that, is, that have existed, and that includes you. And as your creator, friend, you are accountable to God. You're the creature. He's the creator. And as the creator, you failed him. You disobeyed his law. I did too. We are all lawbreakers, and thereby we are worthy of God's justice. But God, being rich in love because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, God loved you so much, he sent his one and only son, Jesus, the perfect sacrifice to be the sin bearer, to be the punishment taker on your behalf. So theorize those facts and ask, what does that mean for me? What does that mean for me? And that leads to the third step, and that is you regard it as true. That means you come with faith, believing, trust, dependence, repentance towards God from your life of rule. You believe the gospel. Because you know why? It's all in the details. It's all in the details. And that leads to my last thought. Because the resurrection is true, as the scripture has said, we also know that all who trust in the resurrected Christ will have resurrection life from him.